You're listening to Biz Quick. This is where Julie and Corey provide quick and useful information to small business owners. Biz Quick is the podcast where small business owners get to showcase their businesses and receive expert advice and guidance in areas many entrepreneurs struggle with. And you, the listener, get solutions, tips, and tricks on real-world topics that many small business owners face. Julie and Corey are the experts small businesses hire when they need solutions. And the BizQuick podcast is just one way they deliver those solutions. Let's start the show. Hello and welcome to BizQuick. I'm Corey. And I'm Julie. And on today's show, we've got a special treat for you. We have Steph and Mike Cook, who are both data nerds like myself. And we're going to talk about uh, data and Julie's just going to sit there quietly. I am. I feel so ashamed right now that I'm not a data nerd. I don't... I. I, you could have at least lied for me and covered it. Why? Everybody knows that, though. <laughs> That's true. Anyway, That's true. welcome to the show, guys. Well, thank you. Well, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah, we're both like, really excited to talk today. Excellent. So we're going to kind of dive into a topic that Corey and I are very interested in and feel like you guys might have some opinions on, strong opinions, which is now that you know the world is starting to return a little bit to normal, I guess, a little bit. Um, and people are starting to go back into corporate environments. What do you think, if any, the impacts of sort of the rules and regulations that companies are putting on their employees with respect to COVID, with testing or vaccines or masks or whatever, what do you think that will do? What impact will that have on people actually wanting to leave working for big companies and either go work for small businesses or start their own thing? Would you like to start? Me? You go. Well, it's a good question. I think that uh, clearly there's going to be some differences, right? I mean, obviously, we're not, at least at the outset, we're not going to be operating the way that we did pre-pandemic. So anytime you have a change like that, it's going to have that kind of an impact. There are going to be some number of people, some percentage of the population that originally was there is going to change their opinion to some degree about whether or not they want to remain there. Uh, and I don't think the corporate environments changing the ways that they operate to where you need to wear a mask, maybe at your desk, or at least when you go between your desk and say the restroom, or if they're closing down the cafeteria, uh, or saying that their preference is that once you show up in the morning, you stay in the building until you leave for the day or something to that effect. That's certainly going to have an impact on people. I work for a large corporation. I know it's, I've had, I've thought about it myself and whether or not I want to stay. Uh, in that type of an environment or if I want to transition to a full-time remote uh, operation or leave corporate America altogether, etc. The other thing that I wonder about is, is this going to be a long-term thing or is it really going to be a short-term thing and we will ultimately get back to normal? We can talk a lot about the science, what the science does or does not say and what the politicians do or do not say about the science and what it does or does not say. That's a whole other conversation in and of itself. But if this turns into something where the long-term effect is that you have to be masked up just to enter your place of work or leave your place of work or move from one station to another within your place of work, I think that that's going to have a, a, a real serious impact on whether or not people want to be in the office. It's going to suck a lot of the fun out of the environment. Yeah. As if corporate was fun. I was going to say. <laughs> to the extent that corporate is fun. So. Steph, what are your thoughts? Uh, 
I mean, I would definitely echo everything that Mike just said, but I another big thing that's come up for me and a lot of people that I work with are concerns around privacy and what, um, you know, what should we feel comfortable sharing with our employers? Um, what is truly private personal information that you don't need to share? Like, where is that line? We thought we knew what the line was before, but it's very gray now. And I think it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. Uh, obviously working in environments where people seem to be pressuring others to make personal decisions in one way or another, uh, is, is very, very concerning, obviously. Um, the other thing, not even talking about masks and health and all that stuff, I think we've spent a whole year where people really redesigned the way that they work and really figured out how to incorporate work and life in, in a new way when you were remote and kind of like driving your own schedule and, you know, having a lot more autonomy and a lot more self-management. I think there are a lot of professionals who found freedom in that and the idea of now giving that up to return to what was normal before um, is a lot of people are just not that excited about that. They think that they there are other ways that they can work outside of the traditional, I go to an office every day and I work from nine to five. And a lot of places have proven that out, but we have you know, companies that want to just go back to how things were before because that's how they were before. Yeah, and I think that's a, I mean, a, a great point to bring up is that um, you know, as inconvenient as the pandemic was, especially for, uh, I mean, for people who physically have to be at work, it's a whole different thing versus I, I, I said it for years when I was in, in corporate, the, you know, the, why are we coming into the office? Like I do everything remote. And then when I happen to be in Richmond, they're like, oh, you need to come in the office. I'm like, I'm able to do my job from California just fine. Why do I need to be in the office when I'm happen to be in Richmond? Um, and and so that that just never really made sense to me. Um, and and for people who let's say were making long commutes, even if it was a short distance, but a long time, like they got you know two hours of their life back every single day because they weren't spending it in a car, they weren't spending the time like having to like get dressed in the morning and all of that. So it's a quality of life thing. And I also wonder, um, like, is like how many businesses? I know that every single business who has a lease on a, an office space probably crunched the numbers and thought to themselves, do we really need to spend the rent when we can clearly get all of our work done without it? Well, that's an interesting point. In fact, our comp- my company, is uh, they had a serious space crunch before the pandemic hit. They were constantly struggling to figure out where they were going to put new employees or if employees uh, transitioned between roles, how were they going to find a desk for them? It was a huge pain in the in the butt for them to, to figure out where to put people. I'm an actuary, and the typical actuarial world is such that you, you sort of go into this rotational program where you rotate as an actuarial student or candidate, so to speak. 
you rotate from one position to the next, from a pricing position in this role to a reserving position in that role and so on. And as you rotate through these things, you constantly are moving desks and they never knew where to put anybody. So you'd spend the first three months of your new rotation on the wrong floor, surrounded by the wrong people and so on. And in the meantime, the company I worked for was always like, you know, they had plans to actually move into a bigger office building when the pandemic hit. I don't know what those plans are now, obviously, they you know, were sort of on a rolling schedule going back into the office for three days a week and so on. But it would surprise me if they really want to spend that kind of money on, on office space when they clearly don't need it for a large number of actuaries in particular, but also IT folks and people who aren't directly involved in the business and, and really tra- transition the the business or the, the office space into one that is geared toward being able to... Uh, sit down and execute actual business in a conference room type of a setting when necessary. Do you did did your company do layoffs as a result of the pandemic? They did not. Okay. No. So they still have in theory the same number of workers. They just don't have when everybody returns to work, they would still have the same problem of the office space. They would still have the same problem and it would probably be somewhat exacerbated because we're in we've been growing. We're larger if anything now than we were pre-pandemic. Now, do you have to do social distancing in the office? What is what's what's the situation like the si- with The situation in the, for me is uh, I I work in a cubicle with uh, walls that are approximately 4 feet high. Uh, and that sounds it's a, awful, by the it's way. A, it's a little bit gray because I think that the city ordinances are are written such that I'm supposed to be wearing a mask at all times while I'm in the off while I'm in the building, uh, but I I don't when I'm sitting at my desk and nobody enforces that. Uh, but if I get up to go to the restroom or to go into the kitchen and fill up my water bottle or whatever, then I do have to wear a mask when I'm walking through the halls. When somebody comes up to my desk to talk to me, if they're standing on the other side of that cubicle wall, then we're supposed to put a mask on, although they haven't been really pushy about that. Uh, Typically, the person who walks up is walking through the hallways, so they're already masked up and nobody has said anything to me when I haven't put a mask on, which typically I just forget to do because I refuse to make these masks normal for me. I just won't do it. Um, Well, they've also restricted (coughs) conference room capacity. So I work in the IT organization and we had an open concept floor, which uh, mixed feelings on that already as an introvert. And, (laughs) uh, you know, didn't totally love that. But then we had all the prior offices around the floor, they converted into conference rooms so that if you needed to have meetings, there were plenty of conference rooms for you to have. So there are conference rooms that are really just have capacity for like two or three people, which they've now closed because you can't have that few people in that amount of space, um, which basically means like you can't have, back to the point of working remotely, you can't have the same in-person interactions now that you can on like a Zoom call, for example. Mm-hmm. Like it's more beneficial for me to meet with people remotely still than it is in person because of the limitations in spacing, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah, you know, so I, I indicated earlier that I am an actuary now, but I actually transitioned, I changed careers from IT to actuarial. And what's interesting about that is that in IT, when I was doing that job, 
which I did for a number of different companies, there was always a lot of whiteboard conferences, discussions with whiteboards where you're drawing out plans, drafting up plans, drawing up flow charts and block diagrams about how these systems are going to operate together and so on and so forth. And when I went to Actuarial, that pretty much doesn't happen. You don't need any of that white, although I think you do. I, I think it would be very beneficial for the actuarial community to start using whiteboards more, but that's just me. Um, that's a different podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but without the need for those white, like I, if I was still in IT, I would want to be in the office because I, I want to be able to draw that stuff out and look at it. I'm a visual thinker. That's what, you know, it would be a lot easier for me. But the actuarial community doesn't do that anyway, so they don't really need it. So I got a question, Steph, um, for you that I'm going to tease before we go to break. Uh, But uh, for all of our listeners out there, you probably hopefully remember Steph. She was one of our original uh, guests on the show way back in September of um, 2020. And she came on to talk about uh, mindset and mental health and all of that. And that's one of the questions that... I want to get into is because a lot of the questions that or conversations we've had with people is that they're looking forward to going back to the office because they want to get away from their family or <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's funny, That's but it's true. true. Yeah. Um, you know, or there's an element to that with us too, but you know, like to have that, that socializing. Cause you know, when you're, when you're stuck around kids and uh, your husband or wife all day, you want to get out and go talk to somebody at the, you know, somebody go, who will tell you that you're right. <laughs> well, yeah, or, you know, just, you know, shoot the shit around the water cooler type of thing. Um, and I think a lot of companies, like, they're considering that, but they're also not. So um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll have your thoughts on that when we come back. Hey, everyone. If you're like most entrepreneurs out there, time is not something you ever seem to have enough of. We get it. There are a million things that need your attention, both in business and in your personal life. That's why we created Time Bomb. This is a self-paced course designed to help you determine what your time is worth and where you should be spending those precious hours every day. Right now, we have an option to buy the bundle, which also includes products designed to help you become more efficient with your time. It's a $70 deal you're getting for only an additional $30. Head on over to sbpace.com to learn more. Time Bomb. Take control of your calendar. Gain control of your life. And we are back. So, uh, Steph's going to talk about... Um, possibly the impact to like mental health or, or whatever when it comes to um, being remote versus being in person. Sure. Yeah. Well, I obviously I think we talked about this way back when uh, as well. But you know, social interactions and the people that you surround yourself with is very important for uh, your mental well-being, your overall wellness. Uh, COVID, if nothing else, has just proven that over and over again that you know. people being in isolation has not been good really for anyone. So, you know, from a professional standpoint, from a work standpoint, absolutely having personal one-on-one interactions with people or even group interactions in person, I think, um, is, is important. Uh, it's definitely something that I think people are missing, but from my experience, and I mean, you guys do all your client work virtually right we do um we virtually do (laughs) (laughs) yeah you can i think that the technology has gotten so good that if you're mindful about it like you can mimic that in-person environment virtually yeah in a way that makes people feel connected still i think where where people run into issues i agree with 
what you just said. I think where where there becomes an issue is that there are a lot of people, a number of people, significant enough that it's becoming an issue in society in general that they're all of their connections are electronic. They're digital, right? They don't have any real face-to-face time with anybody. Maybe their family, if they're, if they live with their family, but if it's people that live alone and that has, that, that was one of the big, big downfalls on, you know, society in the last year was so many people felt that isolation and loneliness and, you know, so the technology is there, and in, but in some ways, I feel like we might, as a society, rely on it too heavily for too many things and don't give people the actual connection that they need in a different and more meaningful way. Sure. And I'm certainly not an expert on this, but I'm sure there's, like, biochemistry and whatever about, you know, people actually being in close proximity to each other. You know, yeah. there are studies around actually physical contact and the benefits that that has. So, you know, not like you're necessarily physically contacting your coworkers, but like, you know, shaking someone's hand, which is allegedly on the table to be outlawed. And, you know, it is. <laughs> I didn't know that. Why? Because germs. Oh, gosh. Because the science. Yeah, the science says so. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's sure. I, I, I got an, yes, that makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, like, high-fiving someone or giving someone a hug if they're having a bad day, like, all of that is also very important and human and an element that we've certainly lost. So do you think that those businesses, little, t- going off on a little, little side street here, but those businesses that were becoming very popular where there were, like, um, you could like make an appointment to go cuddle with somebody for like 15 or 30 minutes. Those were actual businesses. Do you think those got shut down because of COVID and it no longer exist? I would assume so. That seems, I I feel like there's a few mandates that may have been broken if you had stayed in business. Um, As long as they were wearing masks. Yeah, I don't know, but (laughs) I, I, for one, I missed the days of, uh, of handshakes. It's weird going into, you know, a place and not being able to show off how manly and mm-hmm. strong I am by uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Steph and I just went through the process of buying a new car and through the whole pro- that which was a process that took over a month of going and searching and doing the research and whatnot and I don't know how many different car dealerships we walked into and it was always fist bumps or elbow bumps or something. It was you know, hardly ever did I shake someone's hand. I did shake the person's hand from the vehicle we ultimately bought and I was kind of a I'm just going to shake your hand because, oh, sorry, slapping the table. But, you know, that's part of it. It's not just at the workplace. It's like societal now that you can't touch anyone. Yeah, it's weird. It's it's really, it's it's very, very bizarre. So, anyway, back to the original question of... Do yeah. you think that people? I, I forgot what we were talking about. So. <laughs> <laughs> and this what this yeah. is what happens when you when you record a podcast with friends. Do you think that we will see people leaving corporate America to either start their own thing or work for smaller companies where they have more flexibility? That's a really good question. Thank you. I've got more. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Um, then why are you here? M- maybe. And Maybe you Why will. are you answering that? Maybe Steph yeah. has an answer. <laughs> Fire. Sorry. I, Fire away. I do think it's going to be a mixed bag. I definitely think there are people in corporate now who probably are starting to feel uncomfortable with the climate that is developing there and maybe feel nervous about job security or 
um, anything else. Um, but you know, from our experience, like we work with work for a very big company, like financially, our company was secure throughout this whole thing, and they made a commitment early on in COVID that they weren't going to lay anyone off. So there's some aspect of job security there that I actually think conversely, you might see some people be interested in, in flipping, Mm. you know, based on the financial insecurity that a lot of people faced, like maybe it'll just be easier for me to go work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The friend of mine who owns um, a few restaurants, he's had some of his key employees quit right at the end of the pandemic. And, you know, they, they stuck through the hard part. They made it through the pandemic and got basically to the other side um, and then put in their notice because they're like, we don't want to ever have to do this again. You know, they're they're going back to school, going looking for a oh. corporate job, mm-hmm. you know, something like that so that they don't have to worry about, like, the uncertainty, the stress and all of that. And I, mean, I, I get that. Um, so, yeah. They basically don't trust that we're not going to go through this again. In other words, right? Which is, I think, a really important part of the conversation that, you know, it's the precedent that has been set through this COVID pandemic lockdown thing. It just, that scares me to death because there's nothing that says we can't just, you know, if things start going a little sideways in society or according to the way that the leadership wants it to go, then, then they might just re-implement lockdowns over some whether it's reasonable or not in order to uh generate whatever their outcome is that they want yeah Yeah. well and to so we were originally talking about making data driven decisions right so Mm -hmm. i you guys can weigh in on this but i've yet to see evidence so far that a lot of people that are making these decisions about lockdowns and ordinances and mandates and whatever are actually using the data in the right ways to make decisions or when they recognize that they've made the wrong decision you know owning up to it and saying this was the wrong decision and here's why and this is what we're going to do differently no one is doing that and Mm -hmm. it is a real lack of leadership on a lot of levels in a lot of places i think well i think from the the standpoint of the government, they're definitely never going to admit if they were wrong about anything. They're going to double down and then, you know, cook the books a little bit so it makes it look like they are 100% correct in everything they did. Because they, there's no way that our government could be wrong about anything. Um, but Unless your name is Trump. It doesn't even matter. Like, it... Well, even Donald Trump refuses to admit that he's wrong about yeah. anything, right? He's yeah. not immune to that. Yeah, exactly. So everybody, like, if you're in charge, you're, like, for whatever reason, you're not allowed to be wrong. But when it comes to companies and all that, like, I wonder, like, I mean, when it comes to, like, data-driven decisions, like, is this, I feel, especially with larger companies, is this a, um, a decision based upon, like, they actually care about the well-being of their, their people? Or they're like, oh, this is a liability waiting to happen? Because if somebody gets, gets COVID and they can track it back to my place of business... Now yeah. I've got a lawsuit. I think it's a liability. It's a, it's liability limitation. I think you're absolutely right. I think more than anything, it's li- it's limiting liability. Yeah. I think that we've done such a... Uh, the, the government and, you know, p- the decision makers have done such a great job of really scaring people with this entire, you know, pandemic and putting in these crazy rules or you know mandates 
that now people are so concerned with like, I don't want to, I don't want to face legal consequences for not doing something correctly. And so they're, you know, now businesses are, have to sort of carry on what the government started in terms of mandates, which makes it really, really difficult to even th- like, I don't, I don't know that I think we'll ever get back to normal. Well, and what's interesting, in fact, I saw a meme today on Facebook that basically read, it was basically a bunch of Time Magazine covers uh, from 2003 up through, and it says at the top, same fear, different year, and you got 2003, SARS, 2004, bird flu, 2005, death threats, uh, 2009 is too small to read, 2009, H1N1, 2014, Ebola, 2000, you know, and so on. And then he just kind of keeps on going through and it's just like it's fear-mongering at the end of the day, right? They're just keeping us afraid of each other. In this particular case with COVID, it was keeping us afraid of each other. And you look at the way that the vaccine process has changed for this. All of a sudden, the COVID vaccination process is about... it's, It's... I have to get vaccinated in order for you to be safe, right? Or you have to be vaccinated in order for me to be safe. So in essence, we have this vaccine, but and and millions of people have been vaccinated, have had both doses of this vaccine or that vaccine or whatever. But society, i.e. the government, is treating it as if, and it's a power play, nobody is vaccinated until everybody is vaccinated. Yeah, it's absolutely. I've never seen a marketing campaign for a vaccination like we've got going on for this one. Oh yeah, it's crazy. But back to data, mm-hmm. and I, I'm curious since I am not really, you know, I'm not the data person here. We've we've already established that. So I'm going to ask. I don't believe that, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> I'm gonna. I, I have a question for people who, you know, for our listeners who don't really know how to sort of pull data together to make a decision, right? So we're going to be talking about how do I know if it's safe to get a vaccine to how do I know if I should return back to the office to how do I know if I should, um, you know, get direct TV over, you know, Hulu, right? Like just decision making in general and looking at data, right? How do you, how do you, what do you guys use as sources or how do you compile data for, for decision-making and, and just in general to, to make the right decisions for, for what you want to do. I'm going to ask all three of you, so everybody's <laughs> going to answer. And, you know, Corey, do you want to go first? <clears throat> sure. So the question is, how do I use data to make the decisions? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the first and, like, the, the, the most important thing for people to understand is that you cannot uh, calculate the outcome that you want to happen into your decision-making. And that's what a lot of people do is they they hope they you know they 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 they've kind of already made the decision in their head and then they're just trying to find numbers to back that up. Can you give an example? Um, I mean, it's it's uh, you know, will I be successful in business? Well, of course, I think I'm going to be successful in business. You know, I've got all of this. Like, so opening a restaurant. Like, I I like I know I'm going to be successful because I know I'm going to be successful, and I've got a lot of reasons, a lot of data backing me up. But it's also because. There's like for me like it's it is an emotional decision and and it's it's personal and 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 all of that and you know I haven't factored in everything that I absolutely need to factor in in order to say am I going to be successful now that's I mean we're talking 
extreme outliers, obviously, and, and I already know how to survive a pandemic now, so come on, alien invasion? Like, I don't know what the next one is, the next giant hurdle that's going to have to be, you know, jumped. Uh, and But, um, you know, beyond that, like, I think that's that's the biggest thing is, like, you, you just have to look at the numbers. You can't use emotion. Okay, great. Mike, how about you? I think that coming off of what Corey said, a, a big part of that is in the data collection process and the data cleaning process. So you, 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 when you collect data, you collect as much data as you possibly can, let's say. You look for data wherever you can find it, and you, you, know, you go back to your data sources, and you ask for you know, any way that they can provide any more data on stuff that they haven't provided before or whatever. And then the next thing you need to do is you need to clean it. And that's, there's an art to that because the idea of cleaning your data is basically you look at that question that you're trying to answer and you look at the data set that you have built through your data collection process and then you start throwing stuff out. You start throwing out records based on this variable or that variable or this scenario or that scenario. And the idea is you're trying to kind of, I don't want to say get rid of the outliers necessarily, but you're, you're looking for situations that aren't necessarily applicable to whatever the question is that you're trying to answer. And you're removing those things from the data because you don't want those records to, to impact the end result. Right. So if you start with, let's say, 100,000 individual records, data records Mm -hmm. uh, or rows of data out of a database and you go through and you say, well, is this the uh, is this the right scenario or not? Maybe you'll get rid of 10 or 20 percent of those. You end up with 80,000 records at that point. And there's, there's a bit of a homogenization that needs to go on there. And in the actuarial world, we talk about this thing called credibility. And credibility is also kind of an art. And you have this where you need a, you need a minimum number of records in order to produce a credible outcome. But that minimum number of records also depends on how granular your data set is, how granular the questions are that you want to answer, and so on and so forth. So you, you kind of go through, that's sort of the science of where you start to build this data set from in order to make a credible decision based on data, right? At the end of the data, at the end of the day, data is not going to give you necessarily a 100% definitive answer on something. It's going to give you a, most likely this is the outcome that's going to occur, but it could also be this or maybe this other thing. And we don't really know. There's some uncertainty there. That's the whole risk management process. And what is the risk that it doesn't turn out the way that I expect it to turn out? Maybe my business will fail. Maybe we will have an alien invasion and it'll blow up my uh, taco bar, right? I mean, who knows? We can only hope. We can only hope. I know. I really hope for an alien invasion. Yeah, right. So, so I can, you know, certainly that's part of the process. Um, and then, well, kick it off, kick it over to Steph with that. Yeah, that was a little heady there, pal. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I know, I actually was said to myself when you used the word homogenize, I was like, I wonder if our listeners know what that word means. Basically, okay, I wondered if I knew what it meant. Basically, <laughs> what, what it means is you, you're, you're looking for, to homogenize something is to effectively make it the same. Yeah. You have a whole bunch of different elements and you're making them all the same. Got or or yeah. similar in this particular okay. case. Yeah, I think, I mean, to, to maybe boil down what Mike is saying, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think have, data collection in the real world is about collecting as many 
unique data points as you can and then reconciling them to each other and saying which one of, you know, almost like weighting them, determining which is the most, comes from the most reliable source, but you need a pool of information to make that decision, right? So like in your example of Hulu versus... DirecTV. DirecTV, like... Okay, so those aren't actually your only two options, right? So first of all, do you need to open up the pool and look at what are my other options? Like, what are all the other scenarios? Is one option no option? Is one option Comcast? Is one option... Fios. Fios, Amazon, whatever. And then, you know, okay, so what do all of these offer me? What's the drawback of doing all of these? Um, What's my most important criteria? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, when I was asking the question, and I, you know, maybe just didn't do a very good job of of asking it, although your your answers were really good and very relevant, I was thinking more along the lines of um, when we're making decisions, like, I'll, I'll ask a new question. Just simply, you know, very one succinct, one sentence answers. How important is it to look at different types of data sources or to get out of an echo chamber when you are when you are making decisions? Because I feel like everybody's in echo chambers right now and only wants information that's coming from the sources that they agree with, right? So, you know, in our mainstream media, you're either a CNN person or a Fox, even though Fox, I think, is far more left now than it is even right. But... Like, so we like, how can people make sure that they're not in an echo chamber when they're collecting data, especially around things with, you know, like their, their own personal safety and things like that. Succinct one sentence answer. Uh, Well, I think first of all, (laughs) one sentence collecting data is not where you run into that problem so much as when you start talking about collating or, uh, cleaning the data. Right, because that's where you throw stuff out, and you're more likely to throw stuff out that doesn't doesn't match up with what you're trying to confirm. So back to what Corey said, uh, right. you got to take your what you want the outcome to be out of the equation when yeah. you're collecting data. Yeah, it's it's uh, like you know we've we've ended up in this world um, where we're managing to the exception and not the rule and. Mm-hmm. You know, when in, in science, you create a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, and then you analyze the data. And if the data doesn't match the hypothesis, you change the hypothesis. We now live in a world where we're just changing the data yes. to yeah. agree with the, the hypothesis. Yeah. So we have to wrap up, though, unfortunately. We do. Thank you so much, Mike and Steph, for joining us. We really had fun with this one. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I would tell you you could find all the information in the show notes, but I'm not sure what we're going to put in the show notes here. So I'll leave that up to Corey. He's the master. You can find everything you need to know about us in the show notes. So that's going to be how you can connect with us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. And everything that you would ever need to know about SB Pace is on our website, sbpace.com. Hey, you can also subscribe to our podcast on any platform you use to listen to it. And while you're out there, you know what would be great? If you liked us and if you gave us a review. We love feedback. And if you have any topics or anything that you want us to cover or if you want to be a guest, again, you can get that on sbpace.com. Don't forget to purchase our book, Seriously, Now What? A Small Business Guide to Disaster Preparedness. It's a number one bestseller on Amazon. It has a digital workbook download. And if you've already purchased it and read it, 
Remember to uh, like it and give us a review. Yes, I'm Julie. And I'm Corey. And this was BizQuick, helping small businesses across America.